basically these mother trees are the source, I guess you could say. They provide information, they provide nutrients, they are the genetic impetus for a lot of baby trees that are around them. I think that we forget sometimes that these standing snags or dead trees that provide wildlife habitat and these fallen trees that are going to take 100 years to rot out are actually providing just as much service to the forest as some of these standing living trees. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Shauna Dahl grew up in the relatively treeless city of Grand Prairie, Alberta, and fell in love with nature through a forested ravine that runs through the city and served as her childhood playground. Today, Shauna has found a professional connection to that love of nature through her work with Raincoast Conservation Foundation as the coordinator for the Gulf Islands Forest Project that focuses on addressing impacts to coastal Douglas fir habitats. Shauna's work is largely devoted to forest conservation, which includes policy work and review, big tree inventory, public education, and land acquisition projects. If you love trees as much as I do, you'll probably agree that there's something wonderful about being paid to seek out, inventory, and protect large trees. All Shauna's professional roles and more are on the table for discussion during this episode. This includes the ever-changing climate, the importance of forest biodiversity, and Shauna's favorite forest-related books. Shauna is a passionate advocate for the environment and an enthusiastic speaker. She effortlessly shares her experience and research for the benefit of all who listen. I thank her for her generosity and also thank Raincoast Conservation Foundation for their tireless research and work to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of coastal British Columbia. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Shauna Dahl. Donna, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thanks. Happy to be here. I want to thank your colleague and one of my previous guests, Chris Daramont, for referring you or recommending you to me, as as did it seem the whole team at Raincoast said you would be great to have on the show. So no pressure. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to go well. <laughs> Having to follow up Chris Daramont is... Uh, intimidating to say the least (laughs) (laughs) he's a powerhouse yeah we had a great interview why don't we start with an easy question which is what would you tell someone you do if they ask what do you do shauna that is so funny you ask that because i was talking to somebody yesterday and said i don't think anyone that i know really knows what i do um, so I work for Raincoast as the Gulf Islands Forest Project Coordinator, which really rolls off the tongue. Uh, my work is mainly based on the Gulf Islands, as it says in the name, um, doing forest conservation work. Um, so that ranges from policy work and review to doing tree inventories, to doing public education, to doing podcasts. Um, And recently it has included a land acquisition project on North Pender Island. So there's some fundraising and uh, campaigning that goes along with my role. 
So for the listeners who are not in our geographic region, and I'll just preface that by saying that you and I are both very closely located here on Vancouver Island, lower Vancouver Island. Where are the Gulf Islands? So the Gulf Islands are in the Salish Sea between Vancouver Island and BC's mainland. Uh, North Pender specifically is quite close, maybe a 45-minute ferry ride from Victoria, Swartz Bay. Uh, and that's actually connected by a very small bridge to South Pender Island. So those two islands are technically separate, but connected in a way that other Gulf Islands are not. Okay. And so we're basically north of Seattle, northern Washington. We're actually really close to the San Juan Islands of Washington State, which basically, are those basically an extension of the Gulf Island archipelago? Are they all in the same? They're all in the same. And in fact, uh, many of the San Juan Islands are also the traditional territory of the Wasanich people. Um, okay. And the Gulf, the North, North and South Pender Island are both traditional territory of the Wasanich people. So those colonial borders don't always translate well. Yeah. So tell me a bit about the Gulf Island Forest Project. Yeah, that this project is fairly new. It just got started in October of 2019. Uh, it actually began as a six-month internship. I was hired to do some work looking into the Islands Trust uh, policy around forest protection. And that six months just sort of revealed that there was a lot of work to be done, and it has continued to move forward. So um, while policy is still a really big part of my work, uh, we realized that part of effective policy is having an engaged community base. So that started to include education and the establishment of the Pender Islands Big Tree Registry. And then we were noticing that uh, policy really takes a long time to change. And especially around uh, this region in the Gulf Islands and uh, Vancouver Island, there's a lot of private land ownership. So it makes it kind of hard to have public policy influence the way that trees and forests are managed. So then we decided that maybe land acquisition was a good way to secure some land protection now while we work with policymakers to do better in protecting the globally rare forests that occur here. Right. And the forest here, I, I believe I read in your, on the website, we're largely talking about Douglas fir, endangered Douglas fir forest. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's part of a larger region. It's called the coastal Douglas fir biogeoclimatic zone. So while Douglas fir itself is not really an endangered tree, that tree occurs all throughout British Columbia and beyond. Uh, the there's a, actually a distinctive variant of coastal Douglas fir that occurs here. And the coastal Douglas fir biogeoclimatic zone, as it's called, is one of 16 zones that exist in BC. And it only exists in, I think it's 0.3% of the province. So it's just uh, occurs in Victoria and along that southeastern kind of coast of Vancouver Island. It extends across the Gulf Islands. So most of the Gulf Islands are representative of this zone. And then it extends a little bit onto the mainland, including some small municipalities around the greater Vancouver area, like White Rock and Delta. Okay. And you talked about a big tree registry and taking tree inventories. What What is that? You go around and you count trees? 
yeah, it's the like this is the best part of my job. I get so excited talking about it because it allows me to actually be in the forest and not have to sit at my computer, which is also important work. But uh yeah, so it started a couple of months ago. Uh, it's inspired by the UBC's Big Tree Registry, which is a province-wide registry. Uh, and essentially, it's just a participatory science project where we invite community members to use iNaturalist, which is an iPhone app, to take pictures of big trees around the Pender Islands and register some cool data about them, like their diameter at breast height, which is basically you just go and hug the tree and see how big it is, and its height and its crown spread. And we just start identifying where the big trees around the Pender Islands are. And why only Pender Islands? That it's just because that's where my work started. It, this project started focused on the penders. Uh, a lot of the reason for that was logistical. We have some staff that live there, so it was easy enough for that to be a place where I could kind of uh, jump off from. Um, but also North and P South Pender Islands, like I said, are distinct islands, but they are connected. So there's a larger reach being able to kind of access those two islands uh, for the price of one, so to speak. Uh, but we ha hope to extend it to a larger area and include other Gulf islands. Uh, there are some researchers on Salt Spring Island, like Dr. Tara Martin, who are, is doing an inventory of big trees there. Gabriola has its own big tree registry. So there's different initiatives that are happening around the islands. So how big are some of these trees? They are, The biggest tree we found so far, uh, height-wise, is a Douglas fir that is over 52 meters tall. Um, if, does, that, <laughs> does that register, 52 meters? <laughs> oh, yeah, it registers for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting for the rest of it. This so, is on Pender? This is on Pender. Uh, it's on okay. nor North Pender. And then okay. uh, the biggest... Uh, diameter around yeah. is actually a western red cedar that is in my supervisor's front yard um, oh really yeah <laughs> it is massive but it's because it's two cedars that up to about maybe three feet above my head is one cedar but then splits right. two so it has these like this massive canopy it's a beautiful tree but it's 250 centimeters around okay which is pretty amazing yeah what is the benefit of doing this big tree registry? Uh, there are like, big, big tree registries are very common. They there's big tree registries in Australia, all throughout North America, and most of the reason for implementing them is to just engage local communities in forest conservation, giving them tangible ways to contribute to collecting data to understanding the forests in their area. Uh, but there's also a lot of other benefits, like we can identify priority conservation areas by identifying some of these older trees, because big trees are generally a little bit older. Um, it's also really great to, to have some baseline data to point to when you're making uh, policy recommendations. And there's also just really great opportunities for collaboration between researchers. Uh, because of this big tree registry, I was contacted by a researcher at Washington State University who is studying Western red cedar dieback, uh, which is something I've been hearing a lot about for the last year and a half. Everybody's noticing that the red cedars yeah. are not doing we well. Are too. Yeah, so all up the Pacific Northwest, that is a trend, and there's not a lot of, there's an anecdotal understanding about why that is, but there's not necessarily a lot of data showing us why that is. So this researcher contacted me to see if perhaps uh, as part of my 
collections of big tree data, I could also collect data about Western red cedars on the Gulf Islands. So I've started doing that as of a couple of weeks ago. Like, are we de- when you're talking about these big trees, are we talking about first growth still, or are we looking probably at second, maybe even third growth? I truly, truly wish I could say that it's old growth, but most of the Gulf Islands have very little, if any, old growth. I was actually reading a book yesterday that was written by somebody who's from South Pender and has a long legacy of family on South Pender. And um, he was writing about how his grandfather spent almost his entire life just removing trees from South Pender. Um, So it's mostly second growth that we're looking at. I think that the statistic in this particular forest region is that there's less than zero less than 1% uh, old growth left of pre-settlement old growth. Mm, Which is a that's sad. Blue thing, it's very sad. Yeah. And this is primarily for the forestry industry? Yeah, a lot of it's logging, but a lot of it's just human development in general. The uh, Victoria is a beautiful place to live. We live in the rain shadow region. It's one of the most temperate places in Canada, if not the most temperate place in Canada. So there's just a lot of development pressure around here. Uh, people mm-hmm. just keep moving in and the trees keep being pushed but farther and farther back. Mm-hmm. Where did your interest in all of this begin? What a great question. I am volunteering uh, as a blog writer for my master's supervisor who lives in Halifax and he runs this uh, project called the Halifax Tree Project and it's supposed to get people interested in uh, urban forests. And I was writing a blog post yesterday about uh, uh, urban biodiversity and what I just started writing and what first came out is that uh, I grew grew up in Grand Prairie, Alberta, which is in Northern Alberta. It's quite an industrial city. And I spent so much, like most of my really good memories growing up there are just from hanging out in this ravine that goes through the city. And it's one of the only real naturalized areas in the city. It's a largely untreated place. Um, And this ravine is just where I think of like, it connects to the, park that I used to have my birthday parties in. It's just the, the only real treed space in the city. And I spent so much time there and I was thinking like that is where this all started and just walking around this city where you, I never saw trees and then being able to be immersed in this one spot that had trees. And I, I think that we talk a lot about, or at least me in my work, I talk a lot about the loss of trees in this specific region, but thinking about it, um, on a broader scope, most of the places I've lived, those forest ecosystems are not doing well. And I, I, they, those are the, the things that I notice and love about those places. And I think that's true for most people. When they go to a new place, that's something that they always marvel at are the new tree species. Like when I first moved to BC and saw the Arbutus, like what? Yeah, it's so beautiful, isn't what? it? What? <laughs> it's it's shocking. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's, it, those are the things that really connect us and ground us in these places. And it's really, so I think it's just that, just noticing those beautiful places and um, I guess realizing that we take them for granted a lot. Mm-hmm. Want to do something about that? Yeah. What do the trees provide for us beyond the obvious, but why, why are they so important to our ecosystem? Oh, it's endless. And I, I think um, I want to be clear that there's just a significant benefit 
from just allowing forests to be and not always trying to look at forests for what they can do for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that in our system, we often have to prove that these places can provide some kind of service to humans uh, as a way to protect them. But I just want to make clear that they should be allowed to be there and be protected just for the sake that they are there and they deserve mm -hmm. to be there. Um, but beyond that, they uh, they provide habitat for so many species. This area, the CDF in particular, uh, has an extreme amount of biodiversity as coastal ecosystems tend to have. Um, and there's a significant amount of ecosystem services that are provided by these ecosystems like um, stormwater, uh, attenuation, um, reduction of the heat island effect, filtration of uh, particulate matter from the air that we breathe. Um, they provide cooling and microclimates, and especially in the climate change era, that's going to become increasingly important. They stabilize soils and stop erosion. They, it's just like I could talk for hours <laughs> about all of the things and so all of the benefits we reap. And there's so many studies about how we're so much healthier when we spend time under trees. Folks who live in tree neighborhoods tend to have lower rates of mental illness, like depression and anxiety. They tend to be more physically fit because they are more compelled to go outside. They tend to be more focused at work because they're less stressed. It just goes on and on. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the climate change era. Can we talk a, a few minutes about that? Yeah. I have some questions because there's a lot of dissenting opinion on this. Climate's always changing. I think we totally. can all agree to that. Mm -hmm. Plants breathe what? Carbon dioxide. Yeah, carbon right? dioxide. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all this talk, especially from mainstream media and governments, that carbon dioxide is the evil gas that's killing our, our world. And yet, a lot of people on the other side of the coin are saying, no, no, no. In the history of the earth, there's been far greater levels of carbon dioxide and the forest, the fauna, the flora have, have just been thriving in those situations. Mm -hmm. And right now we're actually at lower levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than we have been in other times in the past. And our trees, our forests are actually suffering as a result of that. I'm just a bit confused by it all because we keep hearing, no, no, carbon's bad, carbon dioxide's bad, carbon dioxide's bad. But if the trees are taking that and converting it into oxygen that we need, I feel like I'm missing something here. And I don't, I don't know if that's something that is in your area of expertise at all, but I just thought I would put that out there for potential discussion. Yeah. I read something recently that talked about how it was a theory that maybe trees ca have caused significant climate change when it, in times when there was so much forest and there was so much carbon dioxide that those forests continue to pull carbon dioxide and actually caused cooling events and caused like, like their own kind of ice age. I don't know if that's actually been corroborated and is actual science, but just interesting to think about. Um, I think that it's difficult for us to say there's a, like you said, there's a lot of conflicting opinions about what levels of carbon are bad and what this actually means for the forest and for us. I think that one of the things that 
really happens in these discussions though is that we it's a very a human centric uh, thought process where carbon is bad for us. Um, do you know what I mean? Where like the, like these like changing weather patterns and these like these unpredictable snowfalls and severe storm events that might be caused by climate change are really hard on our infrastructure and our cities. And I, do you know what I, I see your- so it's, so it's a disruption to our man-made creations. Our man-made more creations, so yeah. than the natural environment. And wouldn't arguably the problem be that we're trying to predict weather changes rather than just letting the weather be the weather like all other creatures do or- some people who are actually able just through listening to their body know that the pressure is changing, weather's mm -hmm. changing. We've a lot of us have completely lost the ability to do that. But there are some people who can do that, who understand mm -hmm. by just observing and feeling that things are changing. Something's mm -hmm. shifting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> had this conversation before. I definitely haven't had this conversation on a podcast, but I just thought I would put it out there because you mentioned it. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's an important discussion because I I'm trying to make use of pauses and not ums and ahs as I think. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you're pausing and thinking, I guess what I'm getting at is I see a lot of climate change paranoia propaganda, whether it's real or not. I'm not. I don't know. Well, yes, climate is changing, but whether that's a concern or not, I don't know. But what I see happening is big governments are incentivizing larger corporations to cut their carbon emissions. There's all these carbon tax credits. Meanwhile, we are polluting the earth at an unprecedented rate. And are we potentially not seeing the forest through the trees? to use it a metaphor because basically we're focused on this big 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 picture thing that may not actually be that relevant meanwhile apparently there's a plastic continent in the pacific ocean that's like the size of half of north america mm -hmm. couldn't we be focusing some of our billions of climate change dollars on doing some of those on the ground things that are actually shifting the devastation that we're causing mm -hmm. i think that that's an important what is coming up for me listening to you say these things is that whether or not climate change on a global scale is going to be devastating for ecosystems or not, or if that's if this is just part of a natural cycle, I think that the rhetoric around climate change allows us to take stock of the destructive decisions that we're making and the pollution that we're causing. And I think that when we like when we're watching this climate change happen, it is an incentive to do something about that. Like you're saying, like having like cleaning up the oceans to, to reduce reduce emissions, to stop taking our personal cars or whatever decision that it is that you want to make to try to reduce your climate change impact. Um, I'm not saying that climate change is not impacting ecosystems because it is. And we're seeing that's what's happening to Western Red Cedar. It's because of changing weather patterns. Um, whether or not this is happening at a rate that these ecosystems can handle is, I think, still something that we are studying and trying to understand in our 
prehistoric human brains. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or if that's just a, me musing on it, but well, I don't think there is an I don't answer. Know if a question that certainly, an answer. we're gonna we're gonna drill down to in this amount of time we have. But yeah. why don't I spin that though and ask what are in your opinion, what are the biggest concerns that we're facing when it comes to the work that you do? And the work that I do, I think that it's it's that like with seeing these species starting to suffer because a lot of these species are at their the limit of their range here. So I think they can be a little bit more sensitive to climate change than maybe other species that have a more extended range or have been exposed to more fluctuating climates. Um, there is a very kind of controversial movement happening in the forestry world where there it's called assistant mig assisted migration and it's basically experimenting with moving species to what historically has not been within their range be based on climate projections. Um, and that's in an effort to keep forests productive, even as the climate starts to change. So I think, but we don't know what the impacts of that are. Forests have done this for as long as there's been forests, they move themselves based and species do this all the time, moving based on where they can actually be and based on food availability or whatever it might be, whatever influencing factor might push them into a new place. Um, but people doing it for them is a, can be tricky to understand if that, is that going to be beneficial? Is that beneficial just to us? How is that going to change ecosystem dynamics? So I think that the way that basically just where species are is, is a concern mm. for me in my work. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like the hubris of humans to think that we need to mother the forests rather than, as you said, let the forests be forests because they've been forests for millions of years. Mm -hmm. And it does seem, I, I wasn't even aware that really that was something that was happening that people were. So what you're saying, what I'm hearing is they're introducing species in certain areas in anticipation of climate change. Mm -hmm. And I, I've seen this a lot that there there is the kind of folks are starting to resign themselves to the idea that climate change is happening and that there's only so much that we can do to stop it because like you said they to some extent this is a natural process. Um, so there's a people who are looking at the kind of positivities of climate change and what they what new economic opportunities uh, that might open up for people. Um, for example, I know that in Nova Scotia that there there's some um, talk about the wine industry being a little bit more uh, a bigger contribution to the provincial economy because grapes are going to start doing better in that climate as it warms so <laughs> it's it just it's an interesting topic it is and it reminds me of what you said earlier about maybe climate change is more of a concern for humans than it is for the rest of the planet and i've actually never really thought of it in that way but now that to hear you talk about it yeah it does seem like we're measuring the disruptors based on the impact to us mm -hmm. and trying to spin that in a way that it's better for the environment but it's mm -hmm. based on this it kind of sounds like it's better for the environment from a human perspective potentially only to an extent i think that's true but then i also think of species like all of these terrible images uh that come up in 
David Attenborough's series where there's those giant, have you seen the scene where there's, I think that they're um, walruses and they've kind of climbed their way up to this peak because that's where they used to nest or roost. I'm not sure what you would call it for, they're not my uh, area yeah. of focus, <laughs> but uh, um, they used to spend time there, but there used to be ice there, which made the slopes far less treacherous. So they get to the top, but then they can't find their way down. And then there's this scene where all of these walruses are just falling to their deaths because mm. this is not where they're supposed to be so to an extent like it is we look at it based on human impact but there are definite impacts on some of the species that are here now and like with yeah. especially this is especially apparent in arctic uh, climates where those species are really being pushed by the weather mm -hmm. the changing temperatures interesting yeah so it's it's a complicated issue it is, it is. <laughs> let's go back more into your wheelhouse tell me about the land acquisition on pender island what is going on there what are you trying to do oh i have just a breaking piece of news for you you're the first person <laughs> i get to tell because i think that awesome. this will probably come out after we publicly release this but we bought it we got it we got we raised enough money as of yesterday wow congratulations <laughs> yeah. that's great so what did you buy so we bought 13 acres of coastal Douglas fir forest and associated habitat, uh, which basically means that we've got some beautiful red cedar. We've got this beautiful Sitka sedge hardhack swamp. I'm not supposed to say swamp because swamp is not a sexy word, but swamps are the coolest. Swamps are so sexy. Don't forget that. <laughs> swamps <laughs> you, are sexy. You can take one thing away from this. Um, well, that's actually going to be part of the title of this podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Glad I could I help. Th I that. think it really is. Yeah. <laughs> Marking that down. <laughs> um, yeah, and we, we've got some stands of alder. This is, of course, because it's on Pender, it's mostly second growth forest, but we do have maturing stands of beautiful trees. And we hope that we can, well, no, we know now because we have it, that it's going to become an old growth forest of the future. That's great. It's super exciting. Yes, congratulations. And why this particular 13-acre parcel of land? Was there something specific about it or it was just available and beautiful and worth saving? A little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. So Raincoast partnered up with the Pender Islands Conservancy Association on this acquisition. We're 50-50 partners in it. And the Pender Islands Conservancy has had their eye on this property for quite a long time. They're old president uh his name is graham balfrey he noticed that that was there and he lives next door so he was checking on it all the time and it's gone on and off the market a couple of times because though it is um it, there is a lot of potential for development there it is a challenging place to develop because there's quite a few ridges and steep slopes and things like that and it's only there's quite a few uh protected i don't know if you know what a development permit area is but it is it is basically Maybe. <laughs> it's basically um, a piece of land use uh, policy that protects certain uh, types of ecosystems from development. Um, so the, it doesn't mean that these places can't be developed. It just means you have to uh, apply for a permit before you develop in them. So there's a okay. few of those kind of uh, lingering around the property. So it, it, the, the owners were having trouble selling it for a little while. So it went off the market and uh, Graham brought it up to uh, uh, the 
rest of the board of the Conservancy, and I've been working a lot with the Conservancy over the last year, and it kept coming up in conversation, and we were getting frustrated with the amount of time it was taking for policy to kick in, and we just decided let's partner up and let's just get this piece protected. Nice. Yeah. Well done. Thank you for that. It's very exciting. What do big trees provide us? Why, why is there so much focus on the big trees versus all the other trees? Right. So like I said earlier, um, big trees tend to be older trees. Sometimes, depending on site conditions, uh, trees can be big, bigger than you might expect based on their age. But generally, bigger trees uh, are older. And older trees have more carbon storage capacity, uh, both in the soils, so actually mostly in the soils, but also in the body of the tree. Uh, I think that there is kind of this misunderstanding for a long time. And I think that some of this came from provincial forestry rhetoric that looked at uh, big trees as decadent and diseased. And they kind of started this uh, liquidation type process where they wanted to replace these old growth forests with thrifty plantations because those were oh, more productive wow. for the timber plant for the timber industry. Um, so I think that there has long been this idea that smaller trees are better carbon storage vessels because they're quickly growing and they're sucking up all this carbon as they grow. But that's they do suck up carbon as they grow, but they it's not until they are quite a bit older that they really start to uh, store all that carbon. Yeah, so, and, and Chris and I talked a lot about the role of the grandmother grandfather trees in the ecosystem and how when we're replanting these forests that have at one point were second or third growth beautiful forests so i guess at one point they were first growth mm -hmm. we're replanting typically with mono species and they're all the same age mm -hmm. and they don't have any grandmother trees around mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about that because it's so fascinating to me that i, I don't yeah, I don't understand it even enough to talk about it, but maybe you can shed some light on that. Yeah, that, that's so it's so interesting because I find that a lot of times I'll go hiking in the Juan de Fuca area and I'll be with friends and they'll all be like, this forest is so beautiful. I love it. And I'll be walking through and I'm like, this forest is just a plantation. They're all the same age. Where are the only it just like it's yeah, it's a sad thing for me. Um, but <laughs> yeah, grandmother trees are uh Sometimes they are not even living trees. Sometimes they are, have fallen, and they but they provide basically nutrients to the forest around them. Uh, there's a lot of research coming out of UBC. Suzanne Samard is the, the mother of this mother tree and this like communication network kind of theory. And basically, these mother trees are just kind of the um, the source, I guess you could say. Uh, they provide information they provide nutrients they are the genetic impetus for a lot of baby trees that are around them um and it yeah it just i feel i think that we forget sometimes that these like standing snags or dead trees that provide wildlife habitat and these fallen trees that are going to take a hundred years to rot out are actually providing just as much service to the forest as some of these standing living trees Right. Yeah, that's good to know. And I, one of my earlier episodes was with mycologist. Well, he doesn't call himself a mycologist, but with Robert Rogers, who is a mm -hmm. mushroom expert. And we talked a lot about the mycelium and the network that allows the trees to communicate. And yes, even in these standing dead trees, the mycelium is so rich and diverse mm -hmm. that they 
absolutely would play such a, an important role in the ecosystem. I've talked to so many mushroom experts who will not call themselves mycologists. And I don't know if that's because there's just so much to know that. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. <laughs> He's written books on mushrooms, yeah. so I consider him one. But mm-hmm. yeah. What are you most passionate about? Like if you really drill it down, mm. it doesn't even have to be the work that you're doing. Oh, that is such a good question. I'm just running a mental inventory of all of the things that I love. It's better than not having any. <laughs> I think, um, it's just, I th- honestly, I feel like I've just landed in the most unbelievable situation being in my position because Raincoast has allowed me the freedom to be able to explore my love for being in the forest and actually doing field work with the big tree registry, but also being able to use what I'm seeing in the forest towards trying to influence better governance. I I get really, really fired up talking about local governance and how important um, local policy can be. And there's, there's so much power in local policy to actually make tangible on the ground difference. Um, so I feel like that's really dorky, but I think that like local government is really exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So how well here on Southern Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands are we doing? Where are we, where's the local governance doing well and where do we have room to improve when it comes to the forest and the ecosystems? So I think that my expertise lies mostly on the Gulf Islands, okay. which is probably bad. I think I probably need to understand better what was happening here in Victoria, because this is actually where I live. But so much of my work is focused on the Gulf Islands. Um, the Gulf Islands are governed by a very different structure than anywhere else in BC or even in Canada. So the Islands Trust is a, they're actually a federation. They're not technically a local government. Um, and they, it, it was created in the 70s because the government of BC recognized that the Gulf Islands were this place of tremendous ecological importance. So they created the Islands Trust Act, which created the Islands Trust. And the Islands Trust Act basically lays out that the Islands Trust is responsible for the preservation and protection of the Gulf Islands. Um, And there's two trustees per Gulf Island that uh, do kind of local land use planning. So the, all like, all of the theory there is good, and I think that there are there are some incredible trustees who are doing incredible incredible work. And right now, they're the individuals that make up the Islands Trust are just in, like in a wonderful community of people who are all really receptive to these ideas about doing better conservation. Uh, in the last two years, they've um, introduced the climate change emergency declaration. I think I said that was probably late 2019, so a little less than two years ago. But they are recon- they're trying to recognize that these things are happening and they're s- seeming very open to the idea of really integrating that into their day-to-day policy. They just finished, um, or I guess they're in the midst of a review process for their trust policy statement, which is basically the filter through which all of their uh, governance occurs. And they wanted, they were collecting public feedback. It, the feedback was filtered 
between two lenses, which were affordable housing and climate change. So how can they make this trust policy statement uh, structured in such a way that those two priorities are better honored in their governance? Okay. That was a long convoluted explanation. No. So I think, I think that the, the, the it's term, dorky material, right? Yeah, it's, it's dorky. It's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that the Islands Trust, they, they are, they have done some things very right. And I think that there is still a lot of room to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that the, if the kind of environmental policy that I want to see in place is likely anywhere. The Islands Trust is the place. They have the, they, the legislation is already there to say like, you are here to protect this ecosystem. So with that legislation already in place, I think that there's a lot of room to improve and demonstrate how good environmental governance can be. Mm-hmm. Now, what is our solution to filling our lumber needs as people and Mm. still protecting our forest? That is a great question. And I'm still exploring that myself. I actually applied uh, to start training as a professional forester yesterday, Uh, which is interesting because I don't think that there's a lot of folks who work with not-for-profits in conservation and go in to be a professional forester. I think that there's still a little bit of a trend that forestry is more about uh, removing lumber than yes it is about understanding the forests uh, maybe I, that wasn't phrased very well but uh, they still they understand the forests but it's not so much about protecting the forest it's more about the economic imperative okay um so i think that there is it is possible to shift towards a second growth system i don't think that we should be logging old growth forests anymore I think that that's just not sustainable and it's not acceptable anymore. I think that there's, there can be an economy based on second growth forests logging. It can be done in a selective manner instead of using clear cutting. And there's also a lot of different value added jobs that could be done within the timber industry to keep that economy rolling. Um, I know you were talking earlier about uh, carbon credits and there are possibilities for doing improved ecosystem management that would potentially allow for the sale of carbon credits. And I know that that's not, that isn't um, an end of the road solution, but it is a great way to kind of move towards a more carbon neutral economy. Uh, So I think that there are a lot of really creative and innovative ways to still satisfy some of our lumber needs and our needs for long-term stable jobs uh, within forests without having to be so destructive. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to ask what is a carbon neutral economy, but I don't want to go back down that rabbit hole. <laughs> is, is there an easy answer to what what is a carbon neutral economy? I guess it's just what it sounds like. It's an economy that's working towards uh, far less emissions that is a lot more conscious of environmental priorities over and balancing environmental priorities with economic imperatives if that makes sense because right now i think that it's about it's quite out of balance where the economy is honored above the environment and i think Mm -hmm. that needs to be put into balance okay are there any active deforestation projects on the gulf islands right now there have been some uh clear cutting that has happened uh on Salt Spring Island, 
there's one property called Bettis Road that it has been quite controversial. Um, clear cutting hasn't been happening um, and that, like in industrial forestry isn't as much of a concern on the Gulf Islands as it used to be. Um, on North and South Pender Island, for example, there's a couple privately managed forest lands and most of those are selectively logged um, as opposed to clear cut. So really one of the, the bigger threats on the Gulf Islands uh, is I think among private landowners who are clearing properties for residential use more so than on the industrial scale. Okay. So just some widespread residential clearing. Yeah, there, like, for example, like, there's uh, one subdivision on North Pender called Magic Lake, and that is, it quite closely resembles a suburban subdivision as much as that can happen on the Gulf Islands. And there's just like lot after lot has been clear cut to build, make way for new houses. And a lot of these houses are seasonal houses, which is a big problem because affordable housing for permanent residents of the Gulf Islands is really scarce. Um, so in essence, what's happening is properties are being clear cut, houses are being put in, and then people aren't living them in them six months out of the year. And meanwhile, there's folks who live there and run businesses there long term and don't have places to live. And are there any old growth forests on any of the Gulf Islands? I think that there are. To be honest with you, I've not, I've never seen one. So never I don't know it. where they are. I think that I, my suspicion would be that Galliano has some. <laughs> if they're anywhere, they're on Galliano. <laughs> well, just the fact that you've never seen them and don't know for sure where they are indicates there's certainly not enough. Yeah. If any at all. Yeah, that's, that's sad. The forests are, especially when people are able to go into places like the ones that we have here near Port Renfrew and to see, just the magic of stepping in those places where the trees are the size of houses it's just like it's incredible you can like you can feel it like you can feel like the gravitas is that just me there it is (laughs) i would never use that word because i I don't even know it but yes yes (laughs) i'll try to use that from now on word of the day it's it's I don't it's indescribable it really is to be in that sort of situation and I've since taken not since but I I I love finding big trees wherever I go and every now and again I become obsessed and I have to go online to find the big trees and just seeing some of these trees in places around the world and one of our herbal instructors grew up in a little village in England and they had this ancient yew tree that I'm going to get the age wrong, but it was like a thousand years old. And they would hold their village council meetings inside of the yew tree because it was naturally hollowed out. And you can see pictures of it online. And it's just like, wow, that would be a cool council meeting to be involved in just to sit inside of a tree. I'm writing out hollowed yew trees so I can go look it up after this. (laughs) Yeah, well, if you can't find it, let me know and I'll, I'll get the information for you. Where are you going with things now? What do you plan to do with, is it just continue with the Gulf Island Forest Project? Do you have visions for that? Or are there other things with Rain Coast that you're hoping to be able to do? Yeah, so I guess right now, focus is really going to shift towards this property that we've acquired. Um, we want to do some, we first want to put a conservation covenant on it so that we know that it's protected regardless of who might own it in the future. Um then we want to do some restoration and some community education on that property. Um, and we hope that there might be 
the possibility of extending that property to a bigger network of protected areas. There are some really beautiful intact forests surrounding that property that we hope that maybe we can add uh, in the future as we move forward. So that's a big um, focus for us right now. Uh, there is also a plan to hopefully extend the Pender Islands Big Tree Registry to Saturna Island. Um, I've talked to, there's a really cool ecological school there. It's called SEEK. And they've contacted me to do some education programming with them. And they are really interested in the Big Tree Registry. So we're hoping that we can add another island to that. And um, then the ongoing task is just to shift the island's trust toward more tree-friendly policies. I'm really keen to uh, get a tree cutting bylaw in place, which seems to be a very controversial uh, thought for a lot of folks. I think people think that if there is a tree cutting bylaw, that that means that no tree ever can be cut, regardless of whether it might be a dangerous tree or not but that is not the case. Let it be known, I've said it here, people of the Gulf Islands, if there's a tree bylaw in place, it does not mean that no tree can ever be cut. And it's not a money grab. That's another big concern with, uh, with the tree bylaws, but usually tree bylaws like barely pay for themselves in the enforcement that they take. So it's not that either. Um, but all of, almost every municipality in the Capital Regional District has tree cutting bylaws. And that's part of the reason why Victoria has a really, a fairly intact urban forest. Um, and that's true of quite a few of the municipalities around uh, the Capital Regional District. So yeah, the tree cutting bylaw is a big focus for me. And then one other project I'm working on is with Transition Salt Spring. And we are organizing a workshop right now for exploring carbon uh, projects in the Salish Sea. I'm focused a little bit more on the forest uh, carbon project, uh, whereas some of the people I'm working with are a little bit more interested in the blue carbon uh, possibility. Do you know about blue carbon or? I don't. No, enlighten me. Uh, basically, blue carbon is um, it's very much like forest carbon projects where in forest carbon projects, you do improve forest management to help forests to retain their carbon. So basically you don't cut the trees down. You maybe plant new trees and you do forest maintenance to make sure that that, uh, is, that uh, forest is absorbing as much carbon as possible. So the same thing applies for glue, blue carbon. Usually it's uh, doing kelp bed restoration and working with seagrass and trying to do uh, encourage those ecosystems to absorb as much carbon as possible. And that it will allow for the sale of carbon credits, um, which then can finance the community and hopefully um, some part portion of any of those profits would go into the uh, First Nation communities on whose traditional territories these projects take place. So I've been working with Transition Salt Spring and a few other folks on putting a workshop like to explore the possibility of that happening in the Salish Sea. Okay. And how does the carbon credit system work? So um, it can be complicated. Right now in Canada, it's uh, 
not as feasible as we'd like it to be because the price of carbon is fairly low. But uh, one really great example is there is a communi community forest called the Chickamas Community Forest. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I, won't, I don't usually only see it uh, written down. <laughs> but um, basically, there's a community forest there. They practice improved forest management and they sell those carbon credits to the town of Whistler. So that basically Whistler buys those credits and it offsets any kind of emissions that their local government might um, output. So they've made the town of Whistler has made efforts to try to reduce their carbon uh, footprint as much as possible. But for whatever they can't, uh, whatever they can't reduce, they offset by buying these carbon credits, and then that uh, finances the maintenance of that forest and also creates jobs for those who um, manage it. What can people do to help with any of the projects that you or, or Raincoast are doing, or in general? Like, what are some of the most important things that people can do? If they want to support the Gulf Islands Forest Project specifically, um, just going to our webpage on raincoast.org and looking at some of the projects that we're doing, um, getting acquainted with the Big Tree Registry. Uh, if you don't live in the Gulf Islands or on Pender Island, there are big tree registries around BC that you can join and you can add data to those, which is super helpful for understanding uh, where those big trees are and some areas of conservation and species of focus for conservation. Um, there's also just a lot of really great opportunities to get involved with restoration projects like the Greater Victoria Green teams. They do restoration projects in uh, collaboration with, with municipalities all the time. Uh, so get just I think that doing like, volunteer work like that can help you to understand where what the invasive species are in this area and how to remove them so that when you see them in your own neighborhood that you can remove those like uh, scotch broom is super pervasive throughout this part of the province and uh, spurge laurel or as it's known as Daphne. I live in uh, Oak Bay and there are so many gardens that have Daphne in them and it just burns me up because Daphne is just taking over a lot of uh, areas where alder and other forests are uh, trying to regenerate. So doing things like that to educate yourself on those kind of species and also just getting educated on your local policy and understanding like what tree bylaws mean and like what you can do and who you can talk to about what you'd like to see in your community. Like actually talking to your local MLA or your local trustee if you're in the Gulf Islands can have a really big impact. The trustees really listen. I've talked to them. <laughs> they, they really they, they do want to help and like they, they want to hear from their constituents and know what they want. I know that that sounds a little cheesy, I think, to talk to your local government, but I've been here learning more and more that like actually having your say is so much more effective than just venting to your partner about all the things you're frustrated about <laughs> which is not typically very effective at no. all <laughs> and where can people go online to find more about all these things yeah so if you want to find out more about the gulf islands forest project specifically like i said it's raincoast.org and i think it might be slash forest if you want to look into uh the land acquisition we just completed that one is the name of it is actually sedaeus flycatcher forest sedaeus is the sanchothan name for pender island um so that's a great place to learn a little bit more about that land acquisition um 
our big tree registry also has like tons of resources and a whole guide about how to measure big trees. Um, so that one is raincoast.org slash registry. So you can find it there. Um, yeah, and then the Islands Trust website is a little bit tricky to navigate. So if you're looking to learn more about the Islands Trust, you can go to their website, but you can also feel free to email me. I'm always happy to talk about all of this stuff and get people's feedback on the kinds of work that they'd like to see in regards to forests on the Gulf Islands. So I'm, my email address is shauna at raincoast.org. Shauna with a U. Okay. Feel free to reach out. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> that's okay. That's fine with me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today and for being such a champion for the environment of our local Gulf Islands, which is a benefit to everyone around the world. If, if there were more of you and places around the world taking care of the forest, that would be fantastic. Hopefully there are. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. And I feel like you've just been so easy to talk to. I could sit here for another hour and talk about this stuff. So this was really nice. Well, if you've got something <laughs> you want to unload, like I've got time to. You just have great questions. I feel like it's good for me to uh, hear my own answers to <laughs> see where I'm well, at with this stuff. You did tell me before we started the recording that you just did a podcast on your favorite books. <gasps> Do you want me to tell you about my favorite tree books? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. I feel like you should definitely read Big Lonely Doug uh, by Harley something. He works for uh, the walrus mostly, but it is an incredible book. I'm usually, because of the work that I do through the day, I tend to steer away from nonfiction, but that this book is incredible and told in a really narrative way that makes it super readable. And is this about our Big Lonely Doug? Your here? very Big Lonely Doug. Yeah. Yes. What a... Yeah. Okay. It's a sad great. guy. Yeah, I actually went to visit Big Lonely Doug and I went with a couple of friends and we went to Big Lonely Doug, took pictures, marveled, touched the base, like had an experience. And then my friend posted drone footage of this tree on his Twitter and then was told by the author of Big Lonely Doug that we were at the wrong tree. <laughs> it's just so good and actually the only dog was in the distance and there because there's like there's another lonely tree there that's also large and okay. shocking and majestic but it's not doug <laughs> so that was embarrassing uh, doug's wife or yeah. <laughs> cousin or someone yeah deborah or somebody yeah so um, big lonely doug and big lonely deborah are basically a few douglas furs that got left standing among a huge clear cut of all of their relatives sadly but at least they survived yeah there is a testament and actually i think i think that 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 was such a rebellious move for the forester who did that and said i'm going to save these trees and noticed how important they were and i think that because they, they they've stand, stood as huge icons for the protection of old growth forests so mm -hmm. i'm very thankful that they're there Mm -hmm. But I'm also reading a book called Two Trees Make a Forest right now by Jessica Lee. She's a Canadian Taiwanese author who hmm. compares, it's basically all about forests in Taiwan. And she, I think she's an environmental historian, but she talks about just like her, uh, her experience exploring her own identity through exploring the forests of Taiwan which is a little out of scope for this uh, particular, my particular focus area, but it's a really great book and it's part of Canada Reads. I like the title. So it's intriguing. a really good book. I highly recommend. Anyway. Any others? Uh, 
Yeah, I, there's one called Song of the Trees that I just finished reading. That's all about kind of like the acoustics around trees. And Ooh, the, very cool. Th there have been some really, really great studies about uh, acoustics and recording sounds of biodiversity in forests before and after cuts, whether they're clear cuts or selective cuts. And it is truly moving to hear the differences between those two ecosystems. I think that it's some of the most effective science communication I've ever seen or heard. I highly recommend looking that stuff up. So are these acoustics, are they thought to be communication among the trees? So no, like it's actually just recording like the, the biodiversity. So just, it's just a researcher who's recording the birds, all the, the chatter, okay. all the noises of the ecosystem before and after cuts. And okay. listening to that difference is really astounding. So even okay. when there is a selective cut, it actually it's it does still do so. We're we're not talking about trees actually making noises that we're not able to hear. No, maybe they I, are, but it's not that. They probably are, but I don't. They, it's not that. That that's explored a little bit in the book Hidden Life of Trees. Okay. Uh, about just like this, like the sounds that the trees make, but that what we consider sound is not the sound that the tree makes. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's sound between trees, but not sounds to us. <laughs> our, our ears are different than tree ears. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't forget that. That's another key takeaway. Swamps are sexy. <laughs> our ears are different than trees ears. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, send me those book sure. titles, please. Will and do. I'll put those in the show notes. Okay. And the other links that you mentioned. Anything else you want to end with? I don't think so. I think that we covered a lot of ground today. All right. Well, Thanks I really so do appreciate the opportunity to sit down with you. And good luck with all that you're doing. And I hope that your, your land on Pender expands to many hundreds of acres. Keep up the good work and, and thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Shauna Dahl. For more information about Shauna's work, please visit Raincoast Conservation Foundation at raincoast.org. If you are interested in studying sustainability, the School of Permaculture Design at Pacific Rim College offers the renowned Permaculture Design and Resilient Ecosystems Diploma, a nine-month immersive on-site program taught by industry specialists. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in sustainability and natural medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to learn about new course releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, look up into a tree and feel the connection you have to it and all the biodiversity it supports. <laughs>